Hello, I'm Tiffany Parks, and this is A Bittersweet Moment with Katie Sewell. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell, and this is your midweek bittersweet moment. This week, we're celebrating our 300th episode. I guess 344 if you count the bittersweet moments, but I'm not going to. 300th episode, Monday show, we listened back to just a couple of our favorite clips and took a little peek behind the scenes at what the show is like without all the editing. Today, we're going to take a listen back to just a few of the amazing guests who have appeared on this show in the last five years. Obviously, this is a mini episode and we've had tons and tons of amazing people on the show, so... Please look through the archives and find some of the names of the amazing writers and scholars and performers and expats and repats, all these wonderful people that we've hosted. I have yet to do an interview for The Bittersweet Life that wasn't absolutely fascinating in some way. But we kick off today's show listening back to New York Times bestselling author Hope Jaron, who didn't know that she was going to be a bestselling author at all when she appeared on the show. She was a scientist very used to being in a lab, not used to touring the country, having people like me putting a microphone in her face. But her book blew up. It's called Lab Girl, and it became a major hit. It was translated into 23 languages, and it was widely praised, even by President Obama on Twitter. We talked backstage at Seattle's Town Hall. Much of the book focuses on trees, and we got to talking about the fact that almost everyone can remember a tree from their childhood. The tree from the childhood is an interesting thing. Children, of course, you're born and you do see the green because you go through a stage where your brain is just soaking up everything, right? And people often, if there's a tree in their area, it's this very large, very stable thing that they see every day. And I think a lot of folks have an experience where they're drawn to a certain tree. Um, The other interesting thing about that is that they observe it. As a kid, you don't worry about having to be somewhere in 30 minutes or whatever. And so you take the time to immerse yourself in an observation that you're making. I'm going to look at this until I'm done looking at it. And uh, it's a gut feeling that you follow and, you know, you smell it and touch it and think about it and imagine it, etc. And that's also what being a scientist is is that observing on many levels of consciousness. And so I try to trigger a time when people remember doing it. And I find that they often have that experience around around a tree that they knew. Then as an adult, we probably still often, many of us have a big tree that's still in our lives, wherever we're living. It might be outside of our apartment window. It might be just on the street we walk to work on every day we start to not notice it anymore. Do you know why? Uh, You know, life takes over. We learn that uh, trees are a resource. I mean, we can look around this room right now and look at how many of these objects are made of wood. Um, You know, we've got plastic and we've got metal and we build all this stuff, but wood is still a building material of choice. A whole lot of the things in our lives are made of wood. And, you know, you look at just number one, the sheer number of things, and then think about how every piece of this wood used to be a living organism that, you know, tried its best to stay alive. And 
and maybe pulled it off for 40, 70 years or, or whatever. Why do we stop seeing it? I mean, I think there's this interesting challenge associated with being human around how do you coexist with a resource and exploit it at the same time? That's true for meat and it's true for wood and it's true for crops and things like that, all to different varying degrees. I mean, people have their own ethical thresholds for each one of those challenges. But the challenge of coexisting with a resource and exploiting it at the same time, one method for putting that ambivalence to rest is to deanimate the resource. So we minimize the extent to which it is alive in order to more clearly see it as an exploitable resource. That's what I think is going on at a kind of a deep level, and I also find that very interesting. But it's not the truth for you. You probably notice after working in your field for so many years, can you even describe what you see in a tree that we do not see as a person who has not spent so much time studying it? I don't, and I like to be clear about this, I don't think I have an emotional attachment that you don't. I absolutely don't think that. I don't think I love them better or appreciate them better or know them more or whatever. I think things might occur to me that just haven't occurred to you. Like, I'm very interested in photographs. Uh, there are some great photographs of New York City, for example, where you stand in one place and take a photograph every 50 years and you see one tree and it gets a little bit bigger and the city just grows up around it. And so the, if you think about, trees don't have eyes or whatever, but if you think about what the city looks like to that tree, you know, standing in one place, watching people and concrete and everything grow up around you like this smothering kind of fungus, it's, it's kind of an interesting mind journey to go on. And, and I think, you know, most folks wouldn't look at that series of photographs and, and think those particular thoughts. And then you can go into something deeper, which is we, what does it mean to stay? You and I, the weather turns yucky and we go inside and plants never, never do that. You know, they stand there and they stay and their success is all about being able to stay and endure and feed back into uh, processes that either subtly or not so subtly modify what's coming at you. Just a very different way to, to make it in the world. That's scientist Hope Jarin. She appeared in episode 110, an episode called Plants, if you'd like to hear more. Now, we've had absolutely amazing authors on the show during our five-year run. In just the last year, I was curious, so I went back and looked. In just the last year, we've hosted Adrienne Brodeur with her stunning new memoir called Wild Game, podcast host and CBS News commentator Mo Rocca, travel writer extraordinaire Paul Theroux, mortician Caitlin Doty from the YouTube series Ask Mortician, Oprah Winfrey's executive producer Sherry Salata, New York Times bestselling writer and author of Beautiful Ruins, Jess Walter, Cambridge University's Robert McFarlane for his book Underland, which won the Wainwright Nature Writing Prize, social historian Hallie Rubenhold joined us to talk about Jack the Ripper's victims, best-selling therapist Lori Gottlieb for her book Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, visual intelligence expert 
Amy Herman. She helped us be more observant by taking me on a tour of the Whitney Museum in New York City. Repatriate Beth M. Howard delighted our listeners by not loving living in Germany. Cooking expert Francesca Montello taught us how to make Italian meals at home. Sarah McCall blew my mind with her stunning book, Joy Enough. And that's just the last year. Also appearing in the last year was Pulitzer Prize winning writer Anthony Doerr, author of All the Light We Cannot See and Four Seasons in Rome. He joined me from Idaho, where he lives, to talk about storytelling. Let's listen back to a little of that when I asked him how much writing is pain versus joy. That still the pain outweighs the joy. You know, there's moments when you, you're dreaming these characters and you're filling the scene and it's so fun, but often you sleep, you go back, you reread it, and you're like, this is clunky, this isn't working, how am I going to mesh these two characters together? This book I'm working on now, I've got five separate characters moving through time in different places in time and trying to get them all all to work in concert can be excruciating to be honest so i'll find all kinds of ways to avoid working you know walk to get coffee now i'll walk the dog now i'll go exercise but then once you're about 10 or 15 minutes in, usually it can kind of transmute back to a quiet kind of joy you know it's like meditation or prayer or drawing once you make a practice for yourself once you're in it and you get past the kind of broken you break the ice get back into it, I think you can really find a piece if you keep doing it day after day. Well, and since you did both memoir and novels, is it a totally different thought process in when you're writing about yourself and then inventing characters, or is it similar? Yeah, good question. Uh, yes and no. You, I could write 100 pages saying how it's similar and 100 pages saying how different it is. When you're inventing story, the structure, the dramatic structure is easier to create. Life itself is messy. And to make a memoir is already an artificial act because you're trying to build this disordered thing that is life into a structure. You're trying to fit it into some kind of narrative structure. So often with fiction, I'm already thinking in those terms, even though you have to go through this uh, much more intense effort to invent the details of a day or the details of a person, it's a little bit easier to figure out, you know, where's my rising action? You know, how could I resolve this thing? In life, you really have to put parameters, artificial parameters around something. So in the case of that book I wrote, Four Seasons in Rome, you know, I just built it around the calendar year, you know, and built it around the seasons and our time there just to give it a little bit of structure. Otherwise, you feel like life, you, mean you could fill you could fill a thousand pages just about a, a trip to the park. You know, Nicholson Baker wrote this novel called The Mezzanine, and the whole thing is just a trip up an escalator. You could fill anything with words. So it's really about finding that structure in life, structuring the disordered thing that is life. That's Anthony Doerr. He appeared on two episodes of the show, episode 274 and 275. Both were titled Story. Now, some people we host are not famous at all, or they're minorly famous, but they are no less notable in their message or their energy or their brilliance from those of you listening that we've talked to, new expats like Claire or Jackie or Sam, or repats like Deborah Bruno and Maria Foley. Scotty Madden was a reality TV director who filmed in wild places all over the world. But the biggest journey was happening on the inside. Her book was called Getting Back to Me, From Girl to Boy to Woman in Just 50 Years. 
and Scotty and her wife, Marcy, joined me backstage at Town Hall Seattle to talk about how their relationship had changed through this transition. Here I asked Scotty if she thought she was deceiving Marcy when they got married. I never thought that I would ever be able to be the woman that I am. So I never thought that I was deceiving anybody by trying my best to be the boy that everybody thought and expected me to be up until seven years ago. And then it just like exploded away from my grasp. Do you have a sense of why it exploded? You had to tell Marcy. You had to just stop and stop fighting it. Totally. I know exactly why. But it didn't exactly play out that way. It played out almost without me having control. On the morning that I came out to Marcy, it really just erupted out of me. Really had this sense of watching myself cry and talk and scream and shout and all these things, going, I can't stop this. This is happening and I can't, I can't stop it. But I do know that I have always had a sense, growing sense, once I started to mature intellectually, that you can't hide from this. This doesn't go away, sweetheart. It doesn't ever, it's not going to be wished away, prayed away, thought away. It can only be brought to the surface because it's who you are. So once I knew that, then I felt like I was playing a game. Like, well, maybe I can get out of this lifetime before that becomes too big of a thing. And then I could feel every once in a while I would get a little too angry about something or a little too much topspin on this attitude or opinion. And she'd say, what happened to the happy person I married? And I realized I'm losing. I'm not going to be able to win this fight because it's sneaking out even behind my back. It's coming out of the cracks. So I need to do something about this. This might be a hard question for you, but given all this, did you ever think... I'm out of here. It's not a hard question. The answer's hard. (laughs) (laughs) All right, good. No, no, good. Uh, It occurred to me. Let's just say the thought would come up and what I would do would follow the through line of, okay, let's say I left. What then? I could never picture a good outcome for leaving. And so a lot of times I felt trapped in some ways in that I thought, what am I going to do? Go live with my sister-in-law or what? Take my dogs, sell the house. I mean, you start thinking about the practicality of leaving. And I'd been through that before, so I didn't, didn't really look forward to that. But it really got to be where I couldn't figure out why. Why would I leave? And I started thinking about all the other couples, all these images of other couples in my life had come up of people who've gone through a hardship or gone through a challenge. And though this was different, I actually thought it was less bad. I had a friend whose husband took off on his bike, wearing his helmet, everything, still had a bike accident and ended up a quadriplegic. And I thought, wow, being a caregiver 24-7 for somebody like that, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Not to compare you to a quadriplegic. Yeah, really. (laughs) Hello. So um, I wondered about it. But, you know, one of the other things, I've never said this out loud, but one of the other things was Scotty is the one who kept saying to me, we will never part. And sometimes I'd almost get feisty, like, well, to heck with you. Who are you to tell me? I can leave if I want to. But there was something about that certainty And it was also the guarantee that she wasn't going to leave. I thought, we've always had this love between us. 
So why would I leave? That's Scotty Madden and her wife, Marcy. And I am so, so, so sad to say that Marcy passed away in 2018, just about two years after that interview. I know that I, for one, will never forget her. You can hear their whole episode. It's number 121. It's called Woman. And we're going to leave it there for today. I could go on and on and on, and really, I did think about it, because I thought about so many different things that I wanted to play. But hey, we can always do another one of these clip shows some other time. And in the meantime, so many incredible people, so many incredible ideas have appeared on this show. If you never have, I encourage you to go seek them out, go back into the archives, and discover all the ways that how you view the world right now could change. And until next time, this is your midweek bittersweet moment. I'm Kitty Sewell. Talk to you next week. Bye. Thanks for joining us. Subscribe to the show if you haven't already. And if you love it, leave us a good review. And please tell all your friends about us. Also, if you have an idea for a bittersweet moment, send it to us by email or voice memo. We're at bittersweetlife@mail.com, Or you can just find us at the contact page at thebittersweetlife.net or on all the social medias, just search for The Bittersweet Life.